we're going to talk about the seven deadly leadership sins. It's a little tongue in cheek and we'll have some fun with it. There are some clear patterns that we can identify of things that we hear and do that are toxic for us as leaders, uh, toxic behaviors for us to exemplify as well as for us to allow to happen. And then um, also tongue in cheek, how to get to the good place. I don't know if you've watched that movie Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman a number of years ago or the show, The Good Place, but the parody works nicely actually for, um, for leadership behavior. So I'll share a couple of industry examples because we can learn a lot from organizations that are hitting a point of trajectory or a, a, a point where they need to do some transformation and then not copy those behaviors. So we'll go back a little bit. 2016, Hertz hires Accenture to build them a, an omni-channel platform so they can host all of their brands, dollar, budget, et cetera. Two years in, Hertz decides to sue Accenture for $32 million because they didn't get what they needed. They didn't have the platform. They didn't have all the features, et cetera. This press started coming out just in 2019. What we observe here, if you read the details that are available about the case, obviously it's not all available, but you read the details and essentially if you read it from the eye of a manager, a leader, a project program, miscommunication, basic ignoring of red flags, uh, and a, a lack of willingness to admit that mistakes were made even when they were small. And if I guess what I take away from this is if this can happen to the gold standard in whatever industry, it can certainly happen to me if I'm not willing to look for signals and, and listen and communicate effectively. Another example, that's um, a little, little closer to home to me because I, I was familiar with this particular company at my last firm, multinational credit card payment ser um, service, my former firm was employed to build out a new platform. Eventually, we could white label credit cards for this company. And what we found was actually great success on the tech side. We were to build a new platform, a very responsive um, architecture that eventually produced 20,000 transactions per second uh, that was built around user needs and it, it did cost quite a bit of money. It cost $70 million first to build the architecture and then $60 million to make it reusable. But within three years, the, the credit card company was bringing in $800 million return. So certainly a good investment. However, at the time when this particular company went to take the same architecture platform and roll it out to investment banking and to their different subsidiaries, they, they met with not just resistance, but actual animosity. Why? Because they hadn't prepared the, the, the soil there. They hadn't been communicating constantly about the business benefits and they hadn't been looking for joint incentives. So you end up with um, an investment and a solid logical technology solution that is essentially rejected. I haven't kept up with where this is to date, but when I last spoke with this organization, the, the rollout, the transformation itself wasn't going well. And these were, these were missteps that should have been noticed along the way, that should have been planned out in terms of the way humans generally just interact, but they were left by the wayside of the excitement of new technology. So, when I think of anti-patterns, seven deadly sins is, is a great analogy. When speaking to leadership teams, I tend to think about how does one move a team from either being dysfunctional to functional or being high functioning 
to high performing. The nuance there is one of having the capability or using that capability. It, one could think of that in terms of uh, systems functionality or even in terms of a race car. You can have a high, fun a high functioning race car, but if you don't use it, it's not performing. One could also think of this as how do I move myself from being a service provider to being a partner? What are the nuances there that allows that shift in the way I interact with my customer, whether those are external customers or internal business customers or business partners? So this particular presentation I give on seven deadly leadership sins tries to be not theoretical or ethereal, but actually listen for the signals inside all the noise that we have to deal with. We're all busy. Busy isn't going to stop. COVID's actually made that a bit more difficult in terms of multiple conversations and being misunderstood over Zoom, et cetera. So we want to listen for the signals in the noise. And when I use these examples, I do try to give very targeted, specific thoughts around what one should listen for. How would one know if one of these deadly sins has crept into your team or your organization? When I think about lust, I call that inflexibility, inflexible expectations. And what? how do I hear that? Well, it tends to sound like things that sound like this. We'll need all the requirements up front before we can start on release one. We need everything before we can get started with any work, or we need everyone at the table, or we just can't get started. There's a level of, yes, one needs a certain set of expectations and requirements before you get started, but do you really need everything? Are, are, are you bringing an inflexibility to the table that is then causing bottlenecks, causing slowdowns? The second gluttony, when I, when I hear gluttony, what I think of in a team setting is I'm always feeling shortchanged. One could call it victim mentality, or one could just say, I feel shortchanged because it sounds like this. Well, they get all the fill in the blank. They get all the budget, the resources. They get all the staff. They get all the open rec. They get all the marketing support, etc. Rather than thinking about how creatively I can live inside my constraints, it's they get something that I didn't get. Another thing, another way it might sound is, well, I need all the other teams to be done first. Again, I'm creating a false bottleneck, a false dependency, because I always feel shortchanged. The third deadly sin is greed. And greed is an interesting one because to me, it means that customer obsession has moved from become, being a reality to being assumed. Very early in my career, in my formidable years, I was very fortunate to be mentored by the, uh, the CEO of, of my former firm, the CEO and founder. His dad was a politician, and then he had years of experience in corporate America and global, uh, global business. And he taught me something very important. It was that you should always listen for what isn't said. Should, that The things that are left unsaid are often more important than what is being said. So when I, when I think in this context about greed and what I'm listening for, I'm listening for the points in time where we used to talk about what our customers needed and being obsessed with getting um, the, customers, the customers' strongest needs and priorities out, and now that's left by the wayside. The conversation tends to be about um, more of our needs, our priorities, our constraints, all for the best of intentions. It happens very, very 
accidentally, but it does happen. So what are you not hearing? Number four is sloth. Sloth is interesting. And when I think about leadership and sloth, I always distill it down into the makeup of my team. We are very good at rewarding superstars. And we talk about it, we read about it, we build programs around it, but we're not always as good at paying attention to toxic employees. And there's some interesting research I've read just recently around the 2X rule of toxic employees. So what does that mean? Well, there's an Inc. article that just came out in October of this year that talks about the cost around superstars versus toxic employees. And while we tend to think that a superstar would make more money or save money by their their speed and their effectiveness within a business across this study that was done by um, Harvard Harvard Business School, across 60,000 employees, they found that superstars saved a company on average $5,300. However, Removing a toxic employee saved the the company over $12,000 per employee. How does that happen? Well, it's savings in what would have been litigation cost. It's and it's also savings of not having to to recruit when people leave. See, here's the nuance: is that we tend to believe that a superstar attracts people, which is true, but actually, a toxic employee pushes people out the door. When you have a toxic person on your team, you are two times more likely to leave than if you work with an amazing person. So what does that mean to me as a leader? It means the onus is on me to be on the lookout for toxic employees. There's a third interesting data point here that says that while while teams, I can imprint on them as a leader, actually, they spend less time with me. They spend more time with their own colleagues so their impact ratio is 70 to 70 to 80% on colleagues where it's only 20 to 30% from leaders because why we just don't spend all day with our employees so these this is when we get to the remedies we'll talk more about toxic employees these statistics are very interesting because our focus is not there it's harder to see them it's harder to deal with them it's harder to amputate but that actually is where the benefit will come, is looking for and dealing effectively with toxic employees. Next is wrath. Wrath to me means exhibiting this blame mentality when things go wrong. And I certainly have done it, um, I've, whether I've meant to or not, whether I have intended to be sort of passive aggressive, that's always how it comes out. And it sounds like this, hi team, we have a problem, and then radio silence. Someone brings a problem to the table for a leadership team and no one steps up to help. There's something inherently missing around team success and team failure when one member is feeling a problem and others don't view it as their problem also. How about this one? That's not my job. That's X's department. That's John or Jane's department. This sort of bifurcation will never lead to a high-performing team. We often refer to this as the frozen middle. We've, we've read about it, heard about it. I've been to entire conferences for executives about the frozen middle. And the irony of that is that we're, we, we as a group of executives are sitting together talking about other people. We're talking about how they need to be better. And frankly, these people work for us. Where does the frozen middle come from? It's the people one layer below us. So. How do we thaw them out 
I'm going to leave a cliffhanger on that one until we get to the remedies. Next to last, we have envy. Now, I interpret envy in leadership as in measuring my results against my efforts versus against customer satisfaction or a customer's experience. And it can sound like this. We've been working on this solution for them all year. See, we've already lost something on being obsessed with the customer when the customer is now them. We've created an us versus them scenario without even realizing it. And now we're unhappy because we have not, we've, we've started measuring our, our results on how we feel as opposed to the outcome that the customer needed. And then finally, pride. Pride is no fun, but we do exhibit it often. And it, I think of it in relation to a plan. I also think of it as a set of behaviors. When I stop listening with intent or when I just reject input, I don't even mean to sometimes because, you know, we wouldn't be talking about leadership as fellow leaders if we weren't good at something, right? We did, we did earn a seat at this leadership table. However, we should never stop listening and we should never reject ideas outright, but we do it. And sometimes it sounds innocent. It sounds like I'm just actually too busy right now. I can't hear you right now. That can lead down a dangerous path. Now, now none of these should be taken in a vacuum. There are always times when we do reject input and we need to. However, broadly speaking, these are behaviors that will lead us to dysfunction and not function. They will lead us to low performance, not high performance. Anti-patterns that I see around pride and how it relates to a plan, there are three of them. One is one is plan avoidance, another is plan obsession, and the third is plan blindness. Now, each one of them has a, a sound to it. It's a signal that we can listen for. Plan avoidance sounds like two different polars. It sounds like one could be, we created that plan 18 months ago, meaning it's not going to change. Well, we know that's not true. And yet, we often become married or committed to it. The, the polar opposite of that is, is the agile excuse. So this is agile. We don't really need a detailed plan. Well, we all know that's not true. Agile isn't, isn't holding hands and singing kumbaya. It's actually incredible discipline and, and pragmatism and flexibility. Both of these responses are avoidance and they stem from pride. The second plan obsession, it sounds like this. Well, this only costs X, so it can't be that hard. And if we find ourselves being, being overly focused on one piece of a plan, that's very dangerous. A plan has a, has a purpose, and its purpose is nothing but a loose roadmap. It's meant to be changed. So don't focus on one piece and lose uh, more of the details. This is exactly what happened to the, in the Hertz, and, Hertz Accenture example. And then finally, plan blindness. And that can sound like, well, I know we can meet this date if people just work harder. Another thing it can sound like is, where's your positive attitude? We need to be, we need to be uh, focused on, on being positive, not be problems focused. That sort of arrogance and pride will lead you off track every time. One example I love for this, and I, I would recommend as a leader, taking a look at the Fire Festival documentary. It's on Netflix. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, the Fire Festival was the, the music festival, the event of the century in 2017 that just never happened. It was uh, a fraudulent music festival 
put together by uh, a man by the name of Billy McFarlane and uh, rapper Ja Rule. And they sold tickets to 5,000 people who showed up for an event that didn't happen, an event that wasn't prepared for. The ticket prices went from $500 to $12,000 per ticket, and it was in the Bahamas. So imagine showing up for an event and finding that it wasn't going to happen. Okay, so I think we all can understand and and maybe relate to to, to those um, those seven deadly sins on one level or another. But let's talk about what it takes to get to the good place. The solution is so much more fun um, than talking about the negative angles here. So let's take them one at a time and 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 kind of dig into what good looks like. What does the good place look like? Here are our remedies if we see these in our organization. Let's go back and start over again with lust. This is inflexible expectations. What if you replaced your own words, such as it can't be done with why not or but what if it could? See, to me, I, I, I've practiced this for a number of years now. The use of the expression, but what if you could, seems to unlock teams This doesn't mean that one doesn't have constraints and we don't have to layer those on at some point. But what you want to do as a leader is give your employees the right to create. You want to give them some freedom, some license to just come up with lots of ideas, good and bad ones, without judgment in a way that they can think well outside their box. And listen, if COVID has taught us anything, it's taught us that everything we assumed couldn't be done before actually can be done. How many times have you heard, well, this can't be done remotely, or that can't be done from there. It has to be done from here. We can't share that kind of access, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what? There was a catalyst and suddenly we figured it out. So I would use that as a lesson to encourage us to think creatively all the time, to give ourselves license, to just keep breaking these barriers, breaking assumptions, breaking sacred cows, shattering all sorts of, of, of ceilings and walls that we put around ourselves and use this as an opportunity. My favorite magazine uh, is The Economist. It's probably the only one I read religiously. And I, I love this time of year because in November of every year, they write their prediction magazine. So in November of 2019, they wrote their 2020 prediction magazine. I still have it because it's fascinating to me, not a single prediction was right. And it actually gives me a little bit of confidence that I will sometimes be wrong because if experts like them can be wrong, I can be wrong too. And it's okay. None of us could have predicted where we'd be at this point in time. However, we have learned from that, that there's always going to be uncertainty. Let's give ourselves permission to try something and not immediately say it can't be done. We should be saying, but what if it could? And then we can layer on top of that our constraints after we've created a very open-ended conversation. Next, gluttony. This one, this was always feeling shortchanged and it sounds like they get all the fill in the blank here. I would like for a remedy, I would like us to replace that thinking with prioritizing making our customer look good. If that is my single goal, whether this is a business customer an internal stakeholder, my boss, or an external customer, my priority should be them and their success singularly. So if everything's a priority, nothing is a priority. Um, we're, we're really good at, at saying yes and, uh, and yes and has a place, 
It's not always when you're trying to live inside a set of constraints and make your customer look good. Number three was greed. And if if you recall, greed was customer obsession being assumed. Now, when customer value statements are missing, this is my approach. I use five whys from Toyota. I keep, I look at whatever my team is working on and I keep asking why until I get to the customer value statement, period. So what when I, when I can't hear it anymore, I need to, I as the leader need to reinstate that into my team. The way I've applied that myself is uh, taking a look at change, even changing the words of say customer satisfaction survey to be customer experience satisfaction survey. Because the word experience has a lot of nuance. It, it relates more to how people feel, how they experience you than exactly how satisfied they are. Because one can be based on logic and the other is based on feeling. And we all know the answer, feeling wins every time. So I developed a survey for myself, it's six questions, and it's based on what I like to call a pain to value ratio. So the goal of this survey is actually not a set of data points. The goal, the solid outcome of this is a conversation. If I can sit down with a customer and and ask them these six questions, ask them to help me rate their pain to value ratio inside these six questions and how to improve both, how to decrease pain on a scale of one to 10 and how to increase value on a scale of one to 10, I get some good content that leads us to multiple continued conversations that can lead to a different set of SLAs, a different set of expectations, maybe even a different statement of work if that's the relationship there. So, uh, I've used I used this in my previous role when I was a head of delivery and client experience at my last firm across three hundred and fifty million dollars worth of business. These these were conversations that led to good interactions with customers. So I'll read them through really quickly. The first question is: Do you believe you have access to the best talent to meet your to meet your needs? So if I am an IT department and I am serving the business inside my firm. This is a good way to start a conversation of understanding whether I need to hire different people or whether I'm lacking some skill sets. And and if I'm asking about rate me on a scale of one to 10, what pain is and what value is, then I can have a conversation that sounds like, wow, that value number is only a seven out of 10. How do I get it higher? Can you give me some thoughts around how I could improve that number? This is where the candid conversation comes in. And it might start out a little awkward, but I promise you that if you just suspend disbelief and ask your customer to just try this with you, you get real meat in this conversation. Question number two, am I making you successful? Wow, that's loaded. And it is, it is really honest and requires a lot of vulnerability. But the third one is even more vulnerable. Am I helping you make your boss look good? Because really, making someone successful means you need to make their boss successful and their boss successful. Where does sponsorship come from? Where Where do resources come from? Where does money get allocated from in annual budgets? It comes from somebody's boss's boss. So if we're thoughtful enough to align ourselves with the as high as we can get to the goals of the organization and making those stakeholders look good, we are more likely to have a clear path to getting what we need to make them successful. Number four, do I act like a strategic partner? Do the conversations we have align more with service provider or 
partner, thought partner, strategy partner, tech partner? Are What kinds of conversations do we have and how can I make that more meaningful to you? Number five, do you feel like I'm invested in you? Sometimes this might mean that we need to take this feedback to our HR department and say, hey, I really need to change the training programs that we have. Uh, rather than following the standard that you have lined up, I actually need to adjust those priorities because my customer needs my team to be trained a little differently. And then the last question is always just a general statement. Can you just rate me overall? How painful is this interaction? Is it with my team? How, how much value do you really get out of this? By the time you get to question six, this is not a quick conversation. This is a couple of hours. And by the time you get there, you've already had a very meaningful conversation. And you can now break this down into, let's, let's get examples of how I can make all of my interactions less painful and how I can make them more valuable for you. Moving on to sloth. Sloth goes back to superstars versus toxic employees. And my, my thought here on remedy is we as leaders have to replicate ourselves. And the way we do that is we build in empowered teams with a force multiplier. Now, your force multiplier will probably be different than mine, but I have had to find my own throughout years of experimenting with leadership teams and I'll share my own, one of my, my stories here, working, building a team, a leadership team to build a nonprofit inside my own for-profit company, the firm I was working for prior. So I had the same kind of goals that, that every business leader has. I had, I need to be scalable. I need to be sustainable. And I need to have a triple win, the win, 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 because my, um, I'm working in nonprofit space, so my, my funding is extremely, <laughs> extremely limited. But I also was blessed with having a very skilled team, but it just wasn't enough. There was no possible way that having a skilled team and business goals was going to overcome the obstacles I had, which were, we were a global team, a distributed team. I mean, hello, COVID, but this is pre-COVID. We were a fully distributed team uh, across seven different countries. And why were we distributed that way? Well, our clients were there. Our clients were everywhere from the US to the UK to Bhutan, Bangladesh, Nepal, India, Africa. So if your clients are there, your team needs to be there. Otherwise, you're not providing the best possible service. So rather than just have these, um, these business goals, which were real, I had seed funding I had to pay back. I had money I had to make. I needed something that was more meaningful that would act as a catalyst, this force multiplier. As an experiment, I chose um, to look at Patrick Lencioni's work and, and the bottom of his pyramid, his pyramid of the five dysfunctions of a team is what? Absence of trust. So my thought was, if I can build an executive team that, that legitimately trusts one another, then I think they can be more effective, more productive, and produce better business outcomes than a team that doesn't trust one another. This was a successfully executed experiment. I didn't know if it would be at the time. It took three and a half years to really see the results come to fruition. But how did that manifest itself? Well, we had business goals, yes, but we also had what I called rules of engagement. And these were the foundation of our team and how they interacted with one another. So I'll share mine with you and you will need your own as you decide what your force multiplier is. But I had three. The first one was we judge positive intent. 
And I do, I do whole talks on rules of engagement and how to form them, et cetera. But very quickly, judging positive intent essentially meant that we were going to agree to cut through the noise that comes from not giving one another the benefit of the doubt. This is not toxic behavior. This is simple mistakes. It's when someone doesn't invite me to a meeting or leaves me off of an, a, a critical email or forgets to tell me something, I, I, I let my trust in them erode. I allow that to happen because I refuse to give them the benefit of the doubt. And if COVID has taught us nothing, it has taught us that we're just humans, right? We, we have sick parents. We have burdens with our partners or spouses. We have children issues. We have pet issues. We have life going on. And if we can just give one another a little bit of grace, a little bit of benefit of the doubt, it does actually build trust and it cuts through noise, noise that distracts us from our business outcomes. The second is talk to one another, not about one another. Now, after this many years building leadership teams, I have a zero tolerance policy, zero for talking about one another. At this point in time, we should be able to train ourselves to talk to each other when we have a problem to give feedback to one another. It's not easy, but it can be done. We can learn. And the best place for me to start was for me to hold myself accountable and for me to allow my team to call me out when I was not holding up my own rule of engagement. And now I can hold them accountable. So when they, when they bring something to me for a solution, a problem they're having with one another, I can turn that back to them and say, but have you talked to so-and-so? Have you actually tried to solve this yourselves before bringing it to me? And after several months of this repeat, repeat behavior, our team learned to talk to one another and to just simply not allow there to be a negative narrative going on behind our backs. Do you know how much relief that brought to our team? I know that whatever's being said to my face is all that's being said. You can say it behind my back if you've already said it to my face. It was, it was something that we tried and six years later, I don't even work with this team anymore, but six years later, I still hear from people that they are using these rules of engagement because it changes the way you interact in an effective, positive way. And the third, we make one another look good. So we did change our team goals to be all about team and not about the individual. To the best of your ability, if you can make your goals team focused and not individual focused, you will cut through a lot of noise, a lot of subtle agendas. For us, this built trust and trust was our force multiplier. We were able to deliver software released faster than, than I would have expected and that than other folks had, had experienced in teams prior to that. So again, what is your force multiplier? How do you build an effective, empowered team as a leader? Now, this dovetails very nicely into the next remedy, the remedy for wrath, which is exhibiting blame mentality. That's not my problem. Look, you as a leader have to own making it work and you have to address bad behavior. Now, this is a multifaceted solution because rules of engagement are one, but I want to talk again about this frozen middle concept because I actually don't believe in it. I think that people exhibit the behavior that they are allowed to exhibit and they exhibit what they are what they see in the people who they are likely to become when they get promoted. If they see it working for you, they're going to do it. So I call that a frozen top. The problem lies with us. If we thaw ourselves out and we change our behavior, the middle 
will improve. We can't roll blame downhill as leaders. We've earned the right to sit at this table. We've also earned the responsibility of having good behavior. So that is what being in the good place looks like. It means saying, I'm the frozen top. I'm going to thaw myself out. And then I'm going to roll out that good behavior to my team. There's this great book uh, that came out just this year uh, by James Clear. It's called Atomic Habits. And it talks about how we are creatures of habit. We are creatures who mirror what we see around us. And he, t- he, he gives an example, an ex- a science, a psychology experiment by a scientist named Solomon Ash, um, who, this is from the 1950s, but it still resonates today, who um, showed a, um, a sample set, an audience. He showed them a line of a certain length and he showed them three other lines and asked them to compare which one was equal to the first. This is such a simple experiment. It's obvious which lines are of equal length. But what he found in this experiment is if he were to ask one person, they would, they would give the right answer. If Professor Ash brought in an actor undercover who gave the wrong answer, the participant would still give the right answer. If he brought in two actors, the participant would still give the right answer. However, if he brought in three or more actors who insisted that an obviously shorter or longer line was equal to the one they were looking at, an obviously wrong answer, more than 75% of the time, this innocent participant would change their answer. We are pack animals. We, ha- we, we are comfortable in packs and we will do more often than not, we will do what other people do if there's a majority. And here's what we call that. We call it imitation of the close, the many, and the powerful. The close are family and friends, people we believe and trust, the many are what happened in this experiment. It was, it was a majority rule who changed an obviously, right, uh, an obviously right answer to wrong. And then the powerful. Who are the powerful in my example here? It's us. As much as we might not like to admit it, it's us. As leaders, we're the powerful. We actually have a say over people's careers. And so that makes us powerful. So we have to be careful about the behavior that we allow to be mirrored because it will be. We are pack animals. And and you might say like, oh, that's an old experiment. But listen, I, I, I can't even tell you the last time I did something without looking at reviews. How about you? Yelp reviews, Google reviews, Amazon reviews. Like this is how we exhibit this behavior today. So the quote that I like from this book says this, most days we'd rather be wrong with the crowd than be right by ourselves. We are pack animals. Just keep this in mind as an executive when you are building teams and exhibiting a certain set of behavior. Remember you are the frozen top. So what does that mean when we equate it to this idea of superstars and toxic employees? It means, yeah, we need to work hard at identifying our superstars and rewarding them. We need to work harder at identifying toxic employees and dealing with them or amputating them. And that is hard work. Here's how we identify them. Let's go back to this Inc. article from October of this year. Three things are identifiers for toxic employees. They are this. Someone who is self-focused, someone who is unusually confident, and someone who is unwilling to change a process. Now, that's interesting because sometimes, yeah, we do need to hold to a process. But 
why is unwillingness to to change process important here? And why does it smack of toxicity? Because Harvard research was pairing itself with Duke University research. And what they found is that arrogance, which would attach itself to an unwillingness to, to be flexible on a process, arrogance is contagious. Think that through. Arrogance in one employee is contagious to others. That is toxic behavior that you can't afford. Now, fear not, not all is lost because humility is also contagious. And the quote from this Duke University research is, the more willing you are to entertain the possibility that you might be wrong, the better choices you tend to make. So if you bring an an attitude to the table, whether it's with your colleagues as an executive team, or you bring it with to the team that you're leading of, I am open-minded. I actually might be wrong. Please, let's just talk about this. Here are my thoughts, but I'm open to being completely wrong. You are going to get better ideas from just showing that openness. Humility is contagious. Humility leads to better outcomes. Moving right along, we're going to land the plane here. Envy. When we talk about envy and measuring our results against the against our own efforts versus against, say, customer experience or customer satisfaction, remember the remedy to this is to have all of your priorities end with the customer. Your North Star is your customer. Remember what Surinder Singh told us about being obsessed with your customer. And then finally, last but certainly not least, we have pride. This idea of listening without intent What we need to do as leaders is we actually need to admit our mistakes and create safety for people to call them out. This will get you better outcomes. HBR called this respond productively to missteps. And they grabbed this particular quote from responses that they saw various governments making during this time of the COVID pandemic. A successful response was one that responded productively to missteps. So let's go back to our plan. And we, we talked about plan anti-patterns of avoidance and blindness. An effective plan would be diligence, just using a plan for what it is. It's a tool. It's a, it, it allows us to have a reality mindset. It is um, a, a catalyst for a productive, valuable conversation. It's a set of data with contributing factors. And if we are, if we are um, people who espouse to agile methodology, what we're again looking for is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and not have plans or processes or documentation, but we are looking to have pragmatic flexibility. We're looking to emphasize interactions, customer collaboration, being responsive to change, pragmatic flexibility. That is, that's agility at the enterprise level, it's also an agile process. So summing it up, we look at our seven deadly sins. We look at what look, getting to the good place looks like. We ask ourselves questions like, but what if I could? What if I could change a process, be effective, break a paradigm? What if I could be customer obsessed? This is what will move you from being dysfunctional to being functional, being high-functioning, to high performing, or will move you from being a service provider to a partner. This is what the good place looks like.